Amen. Galatians. Galatians chapter 6. Oh, to be like the blessed Redeemer, this is my constant longing and prayer. That expresses the desire of every true child of God to be more like Christ. Even though they're con we're constantly, humbly reminded how far we fall short, we look to His goodness and grace in maintaining and keeping us crucified with Christ, said Paul. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. The life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And all our getting is God's children. That's our greatest desire, is that we might glorify God in being made conformed into His image by the Spirit of God and by the truth of God. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. Paul says, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them, who are of the household of faith. There is infinitely more to this divine exhortation and encouragement than most believers understand. And I want this morning to try to help us understand it even more deeply by looking at something concerning this epistle of Galatians that Paul wrote in hopes that we might understand this truth even more. So before we enter even further into our text, I want to look at a few things concerning this epistle, concerning the believers unto Paul, whom Paul wrote, the circumstances surrounding this epistle, and the author himself, Apostle Paul. I will do that briefly, but I believe that we will be able to understand even more intimately Paul's exhortation if we had a little bit more of a background into what's going on when Paul wrote this epistle. For these words of Paul are amazing considering the reason why he was led to write this epistle. And I hope and pray that we might learn from the Apostle Paul that nothing, regardless of how persecuted we are, regardless of how abused we are, Regardless, even if our names and our characters are slandered, we must never, as God's children, forsake those virtues which come from a principle of grace within inside of our heart. As I grow older, not only in age, but also in Christianity, I've come to learn by experience and witnessing over the years, it's not what one professes to know about Christ that makes them a good Christian. It's not one's knowledge of Scripture or the doctrines of our holy Christian faith. It's if we can pre preserve or persevere in bringing forth good fruits because of Christ dwelling in us that proves our Christianity to be genuine and true. 
It's how we walk our life. It's our conversation. It's the fruits, the evidence of a principle of grace right in our hearts by the Spirit of God which comes to fruition in our character, in our attitudes, in the way we live, the way we believe, the way we think. That is what makes us or is evidence of us truly being in Christ, not what we profess to know. I have over the years heard and seen many professing believers who spoke boldly and abundantly of the Scriptures and of the doctrines of our holy Christian faith only to see the fruits in their lives to be contrary to what they professed to believe. That is not what we as Christians should strive for. We should strive to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we've been called. And as we understand Paul's situation here and what's going on in this short epistle to the Galatians, and when we understand Paul's predicament and what he was facing, and then we look at these exhortations and encouragements in Galatians chapter 6, I hope it would encourage us to be more like Christ by following Paul's example. Unlike most of Paul's epistles, this epistle to the Galatians was not written to merely one church only. But in verse 2 of chapter 1, it's a multitude of churches throughout the providence of Galatia. It's more than one church. That's unusual. Most of his other epistles are written to one church. This epistle is written to a lot of churches, many churches in the providence of Galatia. The conversion of many of these believers were either through Paul's ministry or indirectly through his ministry. Either they were converted through his preaching, or he was instrumental in some way in their conversion. And not only that, after their conversion, Paul ministered to the nourishment of their spiritual life. He did that with great affection, and great labor, and love, and perseverance. Paul ministered to them in such a manner and fashion that these believers in the churches of Galatia loved Paul dearly. He took great care in ministering to their spiritual nourishment after their conversion. This is what a true minister of the gospel does. He not only by God, he's called to preach the gospel that they might be converted, but that he might feed the flock or the church of God which Christ has purchased with his own blood. He is to nourish them spiritually in the things of God that they might grow in grace and in knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and that Christ might be conformed within them. That's the preacher's greatest goal. It's not a selfish one. It's one that's very self-sacrificing, yet one he loves to do because he's been called to do it. And this was what Paul was doing. He loved these believers at Galatia, in Galatia, and they loved him in return. We need to understand that. They loved him so much that he says in chapter 4, verse 14, that they received him as an angel of God and even as Christ Jesus. That's a great affection. Paul's not trying to boast and say he's something on the same measure as Christ or that he should be elevated above his position. Paul's simply stating a fact that these believers loved and adored Paul to that measure. They greatly adored him. They greatly loved him. 
and his physical infirmities, even those, he said, if it were possible, you would have plucked out your own eye and given it to me. Some say that's because maybe he had some eye problems or something, whatever it might be. But this is how much these believers in, in the providence of Galatia loved and admired Paul, and Paul loved and admired them. Who wouldn't? It's a mutual thing between the preacher and the congregation. He loves them in Christ. They love Him in Christ. He seeks to nourish them in the things of God that they might grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And they support and encourage Him in the ministry. They pray for Him because they know that God uses Him to speak to them in their spiritual life. Feeds them spiritual food. That might not be the idea of many people today concerning the church and pastors, but that's the biblical point of it. And this was very much seen in these churches in Galatia. Yet, in his absence, when Paul left this province, there arose certain Judaizers, and I'll just speak on this briefly, who taught that the gospel of Jesus Christ, which Paul preached, was not enough for salvation. But they must also keep the law. They didn't deny the gospel of Jesus Christ. They simply said, that's okay, but that's not sufficient of itself. You need to also keep the law. This perverting of the gospel of Christ, which the Apostle Paul would immediately and with strong exhortations denounce, condemn in chapter 1, he calls it a perversion of the gospel. In fact, in Galatians chapter 1, Paul uses the strongest language than he does in any other brief. Let him be a curse who comes to you with another gospel. Yet it's not another gospel. Paul was very bold about that. He immediately begins this epistle by saying they are perverting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because although Paul loved the believers, it was the gospel of Jesus Christ which was preeminent in Paul's heart and mind. That must be preserved. Without which there could be no real true Christianity, correct? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, beloved, in this day and age, we need to preserve the pure gospel of Jesus Christ because it's being perverted by many so-called churches. They're changing it. They're transforming it to fit the culture of this world and society. We must be careful not to allow ourselves to pervert it to please the world. But these Judaizers not only came in and sought to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ, thus perverting the doctrine of justification by faith without the works of the law, which is a vital, important doctrine, a pivotal doctrine for our Christian faith, but also in their evil attempts to pervert the gospel, they tried to convince the believers throughout Galatia of these lies about perverting the gospel by attacking the reputation and character of the Apostle Paul. They not only sought to pervert the gospel, but they began to attack the reputation and character of the Apostle Paul. He's not a real apostle. He didn't walk with Christ. He, did, he wasn't there with the twelve apostles. Not only that, this apostle, this apostle Paul is a deceiver. He's no good. He's carnal. He's fleshly. They began to slander Paul's character and try to bring his reputation as an apostle into question. And beloved, that's exactly what false 
prophets, false teachers do, if they can't pervert the truth of God, they'll try to slander the individual who's proclaiming the truth of God. And believe me, 35 years as a preacher, I've witnessed some of that myself in the past as a pastor. If they can't pervert the gospel or the truth of God, then they try to get to it or pervert it by slandering those who would proclaim it. And that's what they did with Paul. So all these things were against the Apostle Paul. The perverters of the gospel of Jesus Christ, their harsh and cruel slanders of his reputation as an apostle and his character, and even those to whom he lovingly ministered unto and once showed him great affection, now turned against Paul. Most preachers in this day and age, with those things facing them, would turn around and walk away. Yet not Paul. I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'm tired of those who profess to be preachers of the gospel and run away from the slightest confrontations and oppositions. They flee like a hireling, as we'll see in a few minutes. That's not a preacher. You've got to expect persecution. Paul said, be partakers of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, Timothy. You're partakers of the affliction. That whole chapter 1 of 2 Timothy is about the ministry. Even though we can apply it to Christian lives, read it. It's about the ministry. Paul said, God has not given you uh, a, a, an unsound mind. He's given you a sound mind, not of cowardness or weakness, but a sound mind of love. Why? So that you might be a preacher of the gospel and the afflictions which come with it, you're a partaker of it. They're part of the gospel. If you're going to profess to be a preacher of the gospel, you have to be also ready to partake in the afflictions that come with it. And those afflictions are not only from the outside, but the inside. I'm telling you, preachers have to put up with a lot. Not only the world denying or rejecting their message, but Christians who rise up in rebellion and, and disobedience to the truths of God. There's a lot they have to put up with. And I think that ought to be preached in a lot of these seminaries and schools where they're raising up preachers. Let them preach that. Let them teach them that. Not just simply that it's all going to be very rosy and good and welcoming. Everybody's going to embrace you and love you. Let me tell you something. Sometimes you will be the most hated, if not the most despised, amongst all. I mean, look at Paul. Even in Timothy, he said, all men have forsaken me. We would think, man, I'd never forsake Paul. Boy, I'd cling to Paul every step of the way. I'd follow him all the way he traveled. I'd fall at his feet, listen to his preaching. Paul was a great preacher. They didn't. Even Christ himself, when it came down to the end of his life, where were all his followers? Now, I get tired of people proclaiming to be ministers of the gospel and flee at the slightest sign of opposition. Paul didn't do that. Paul sat down and wrote this epistle to the Galatians. Through all this, Paul lovingly persevered and endured such afflictions. Like he said to the church at Corinth, which also kind of abused him a lot, he was ready to spend and be spent for those unto whom Christ had called him to minister unto. He said, I'm ready to be, I'm ready to spend and to be spent for you. Even, he said in Corinthians, first, second Corinthians 12, even the more abundantly I love you, the less you love me, he said. 
If a man gets into the ministry to be loved, he's getting in for the wrong reasons and he's going to be greatly disappointed. Because I'm telling you, when you proclaim this book, this holy book of God, even though they profess to be the most sanctified, holy believers in the world, there's going to come a truth, there's going to come a part while you're preaching this book that it's going to be offensive to them if you're loyal to God. Paul says, and we'll read it in a minute, to the Galatians, he said, I've, I become your enemy because I tell you the truth. Now, while I'm saying all this, think about our text. Let us not be weary in well-doing. Paul was a, was a great example of that. If anybody should be weary in well-doing, it should be Paul. Paul could have said, okay, for all that, I mean, all I did for you, I sacrificed my time, my labors, and you, you, know, you, you loved me this much, and now you're turning on me, and you want to listen to these false Judaizers? Well, I'll tell you one thing. I'll just pick up my church, and I'll go start a church someplace else, and I'll just leave you. That's the language of many professing preachers today. Well, I'll just pick up things and go start another church somewhere. It's easier just to start. They try to start over thinking they're, it's going to be better on the other side of the fence. That's not true. Let me tell you something. A true preacher is like Paul. He will persevere, lovingly persevere, and endure because they are the flock of God. You say, but preacher, they're being rebellious. It doesn't matter. It's not about Paul. It's not about his position. It's not about him. It's not about the preacher. It's not about him finding favor in the people, eyes of people. It's all about Christ. It's all about the truth of God. It's all about the gospel. Because the preacher knows those things is what will deliver those from error and evil and disobedience. That's what Paul was. So I say, herein lies the true heart of every true minister of the gospel who's been called to feed the church of God, which Christ has purchased with his own blood, according to Acts. A true minister of the gospel will not so easily abandon or give up, even in the worst of circumstances. And I know, saying that, I know there are circumstances where maybe possibly that is the case. I'm not saying that is a blanket statement for every circumstance or situation. Because I've known a lot of preachers. I've known a lot of things myself. I've seen a lot of things myself. There are exceptions to the rule. I'm not saying this, but I'm telling you, generally, generally, the rule of law is preacher don't abandon so easy. He don't give up so easy. Look at what he did in the church of Corinth. If you're familiar with the passage of First and Second Corinthians, I mean, they didn't like him. He had to send Timothy to him. He said, Timothy, go to him and try to reconcile things. He was sorry that they were made sorrowful, but he said, it was a godly sorrow. It was good for you. It was, but still, Paul yearned in his heart and his mind. His soul yearned to be reconciled with the believers. He said, Timothy, you take this letter to them and you tell them, I love them, I adore them. Paul didn't say, well, forget them. They don't want the truth, so I'm just going to go off to Galatia or I'm going to go off to Ephesus. And he said, no, Timothy, you go back and you be my third voice. You be the, someone who reconciles us. Timothy, here's the letter. Tell them, show them, prove them. That's a true preacher. By the grace of God, a true preacher will lovingly preserve, persevere, I mean, and endure, seeking not his own profit but the prophet of many. That's what Paul says. I seek not my own prophet, Paul said, but the prophet of many. Why? That they may be saved. That was Paul. 
He was ready to be partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. He says, no, I'm not going to give up so easy on you. I'm not going to abandon you. Yes, you've been deceived. Yes, you've followed them. Yes, you're ready to turn on me. Yes, you're ready to believe a false gospel. Yes, you're in a bad situation, but I'm not going to give you up. I like what, what Samuel said about Saul. When Saul sinned against God and Saul said, please pray for me, he said, God forbid that I should sin against God and not pray for you. Now that should generally be the spirit of every true believer, regardless of how other Christians might treat you. You should always be ready to reconcile. You should always be ready to pray. You should always be ready to find some ground where you can reconcile with one another. Unfortunately, that's not true in this day and age of schisms and divisions and separations. They, everybody believes in that. They thrive in that. True Christians should always be ready and prepared for reconciliation. Paul was not easily going to abandon and give up even in the worst of circumstances. But by God's grace, we'll lovingly persevere and endure. Yet, you know who won't? Follow me. You know who won't? A hireling. And oh, the churches are filled with them today. Hireling, the Lord said, careth not for the sheep. He don't care about the sheep. Only for himself. Well, this just doesn't fit me. This just isn't right. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not successful. I'm not making enough money. I'm not, so I'm gonna, he doesn't care about the sheep. He cares about himself. A true minister cares for the sheep. You say, preacher, what if those sheep turn and act like wolves? He still cares for the sheep. Do we not as Christians sometimes, if not often, more than we like to confess, act like wolves in a relationship to Christ, not sheep? Does Christ abandon us? Does he leave us? No. If need be, he'll chasten us, Hebrew says. He said, if you don't, your bastards are not sons. He loveth those, those whom loveth, he chastens. No, that's what they do. That's why God also has appointed churches preachers. They not only love, they not only nourish, they not only feed, they not only exhort and encourage, sometimes God uses them to chasten God's people by the messages he preaches so that we all might stay in accordance uh, to the truth. It's unnecessary. Yet that doesn't, it's not always easily received, is it? A hireling will leave the sheep and flee at the first sign of trouble. Is what the Lord said in John chapter 10. You see, all these things were confronting Paul when he begins writing this epistle. With all these things against the apostle Paul, with all that in mind, so I said all that, now we can examine our text a little bit more thoroughly in hopes that we might truly understand even more the rich blessings of his exhortation to be not weary in well-doing. With all that in mind, let's go back to Galatians chapter 6 and begin in verse 1. With all that in mind, all those things against Paul, listen to what Paul says beginning in chapter 6 of Galatians. Amazing. Brethren, love that. That was always a sign of affection. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, 
Restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Here is a man who's been slandered. Gospel's been perverted. The Christians in Galatia have turned on him. But listen to his exhortation. He doesn't stop doing well. He doesn't stop loving. He doesn't stop exhorting them to mildly rebuke a brother. He doesn't stop telling them, you help those who've fallen in a fault. That is grace. In the heart of anybody else that was not converted, you would see anger, envy, contempt. Now Paul, in the face of all that, Paul says, no, you, you help a brother who's fallen in fault. What love and warmth. Bear ye one another's burdens. And so feel the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teaches in all good things. That's an amazing encouragement exhortation when you consider what he's facing. When they didn't do that at the moment, they didn't commute unto him all good things. You see, Paul's not stopping in doing well. He's not stopping in those principles of grace imparted in his heart by the Spirit of God. You see, beloved, it doesn't matter how much we're persecuted, how much we're opposed, how much we're slandered. If we have a principle of grace in our heart by the Spirit of God, we will persevere in well-doing. We will love when they do not love us. We will pray when they do not, when they persecute us. We will bless when they curse us. Do you see what I'm talking about? This is the evidence of true grace in the heart. Yet today there's a, an arrogance. Well, I know what I'm talking about. I was right. I was biblically correct. And it doesn't matter what they say. Paul didn't say that. Paul didn't say, I don't care what you do. Look what you've done to me. He says, no, let me remind you. Continue well doing. Listen to this. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Verse 7. Look at this. Not mock. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. What you sow, you'll reap. You will. It's a divine truth in that, which we'll maybe one day preach on. For he that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But watch this. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. You see the difference? And watch what he says on the tail end of that. And let us, include himself, not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Now listen to this. As we have opportunity, as we therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men. I didn't classify anybody. He says everybody. Let's do good to all men. Let's let's do. Here's a man that's been slandered, gospel's been perverted, and people's turning. He said, let's do good unto all men. That's an evidence of grace. Let us do good unto all men. And I love this. He shows his heart for God's people, especially, especially, especially unto them who are the household of faith. Especially those. Paul, you should have a heart full of resentment towards these believers. No, Paul says no. Do you see that? Nothing can dwarf that principle of grace if we're truly saved in our heart. Are you listening to me? This has nothing to do with you and I persevering and trying our best to do something outwardly. No, this is what he said, the fruit of the Spirit. This is what, this is what it means to reap 
in the Spirit, will sow in the Spirit everlasting life. This is something that's a principle of grace. God has planted it in there. You want evidence that you're a Christian? How do you handle yourself when people slander you, when people oppose you, when the world hates you? How do you handle yourself? Do you still have in, in you an evidence of love and affection for them? And you're wondering, how can this ever be? That's the true evidence of Christianity, not what one professes to know. That's the evidence of true Christianity. And beloved, I see very little of that in this day and age of multitude professors. They're not acting like Christians. They're not acting like Christ. They're not following Paul's example. When people oppose them or slander them, I'm telling you, that's it. They write them off. Paul didn't do that. You want know, the most amazing things about the principle of grace imparted to heart of believer? <sighs> it thrives in spite of ourselves. Listen to me. It thrives in spite of ourselves. Do you know that? When we do or say something wrong or incorrect, even sinful, we have no peace in our hearts. It troubles us. It bothers us. We can't sleep. We're sensitive to that. And by God's grace, we've got to find some way to reconcile that. We've got to find some way to make it right. That's grace. You know, some of my greatest convictions of assurance of salvation has not come when I've been on the mountain ready to sing jubilees unto God. Those have been good times. But some of the greatest assurances of my salvation came when I felt my worst. And I knew I didn't deserve nothing. And yet God assured me that I'm His. And that He has not forsaken me. And He's given me that peace of heart and mind that no matter what happens, He shall be. He will perfect that which concerneth me. I love that verse. When God imparts unto you and I that principle of grace and salvation, dearly beloved, it's not up to us to see it grow. Though we can help or hinder it, I admit that. Even though some say, no, you can't, you know, sovereignty. No, we can help or hinder it, but we cannot stop that. We cannot hinder that. God is sovereign. We're saying, oh, we believe in the sovereignty of God. Look what he does in the universe. And he calls men unto himself, and you know, he, he overcomes their will, and he draws them to him, and we're proudful of that sovereignty of God. But what about the sovereignty of God in the principle of grace in our hearts? Is God not sovereign there as well? Cannot God sovereignly, sovereignly move his grace to overwhelm and overpower our sinful behaviors and attitudes and conform us into the image of Christ? Is he not the potter? That's salvation. What loving and warm exhortations to deal gently and mildly with the brother that has fallen. If he were not a Christian, he wouldn't care because he would be resentful at this moment. You didn't care about me. You think I'm your enemy. I don't care what you do to one another. No, Paul says no. And he says to bear one another's burdens. While never being weary and well-doing. And he says all this, he exhorts them to all this in the face of fierce opposition, slander of his person and reputation, and even losing the affections of those unto whom he labored and loved. He says all that in the face of all that. That's grace. You want to see grace? Listen to me. These things did not move Paul to bitterness, anger, or resentment. 
but merely stirred up his resolution to encourage and exhort others to love and to good works. That's an evidence of grace. Beloved, herein lies the true grace imparted into the heart. And it's made manifest, listen to me, it's made manifest by the trying fire of persecution and afflictions. You know where true grace imparted is manifested? It's manifested by the trying fire of persecution affliction. You want to see if you really love like Christ loves. Let somebody come into your life who's unlovable and try to love them. Do somebody a favor that's always doing you wrong. Forgive somebody who denies or will never or doesn't want to forgive you. Forgive them. Pray for them who persecute you. Love them who hate you. You see, that's where true grace imparted in the heart is manifested under the fiery trials of afflictions. True gold is revealed in the fire. Many would make a fair show in the flesh while the weather is fair and all is in their favor. Yet true grace imparted, beloved, blossom and flourishes in the midst of God's fiery trials. Do you know that? I, I, I just don't know if I'm saved or not. I don't know if I have... Well, how's it go in times of afflictions and persecution? How's it go under the fiery trials? If you're a true Christian, you know what I'm talking about because you stand back there and I'm telling you, it's like somebody somebody out of yourself is working in your heart and doing things that you cannot comprehend or understand. I should right now be flipping out. I should be, I should be, the world should be upside down. I should be beating my head against the wall. I should be going literally crazy at this moment. But there is such a calm and peace in my heart, even though the situation hasn't changed outwardly. See, beloved, these, these are times the Christian rejoices. Even though outwardly it's uncomfortable to the flesh, oh, the Spirit thrives, thrives in that. These afflictions, which are but a moment, work forth a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Do we understand that? Eternal weight of glory, for they help us to set our eyes on things that are not seen, for the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal, so they work for us. I'm not saying God only uses the fiery trials to reveal unto us the evidence of grace in our hearts, but I'm telling you that's when we see it more clearly. Remember what the Lord said in John 15 regarding the fruit and the branches? He said, every branch that bears fruit, amen, I'm bearing fruit. Hmm finish the sentence. Every branch that beareth fruit, he purges it. He'll cut it. Why? I'm bearing fruit. Why would God do that? That it may bring forth more fruit. You ever seen those in the vineyard at work? Purging the vines? so delicately cutting the vines so that it might bring forth more fruit. You, you, you see that? That's why our afflictions work for us. And that's why 
this exhortation and encouragement of Paul is so rich when you consider what's facing Paul, and he still says, let us not be weary in well-doing. Yet, as the hope of a hypocrite shall perish, Job chapter 8, so also his fruits, because they are sown to his flesh, and therefore shall reap corruption. A hypocrite boasts all the time about his fruit, but oh, let it come under persecution, let it come under fire, and it withereth, it burneth up. Every vine in me that beareth not fruit, he cutteth off and cast in the fire. There's no fruit, there's no fruit, there's no fruit. Oh, and I'm telling you, I've seen over the last 40 years many who made a big boast of their fruits, and yet they didn't, they didn't persevere, they didn't thrive, they didn't grow. They didn't get more fruit. The Lord said, you shall know them by their fruits. Not by their profession, nor by the measure of their knowledge of God and Scripture, but by their fruits. You'll know them by their fruits. That's why Paul's exhortation, Galatians 6, is to me so rich. Here's not a resentful man, though he has every right to be. Here's not a bitter man, though he has every right to be, humanly speaking. Here's not an angry man, but here's a man saying, no, it doesn't matter how they treat me. It doesn't matter what they, how they slander me. It doesn't matter. Yes, the gospel. Yes, I'm going to tell you that's a false gospel. And he stands up and he contends for the faith. And that's good. That's the boldness Paul has. But Paul still maintains that Christians ought to still be doing well. Good in spite of all that. Remember in writing to believers in Philippi? We preached that epistle years ago in Germany. It took us about five years, I think. But uh, amazing epistles. In there you see Paul more of a pastor than an apostle. But in writing to believers in Philippi, though he was imprisoned and facing certain possible if not certain death under Nero who was a very wicked king Paul exhorts them in that epistle and this is the theme of Philippians to rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always Paul you're in prison look at what King Nero does to Christians he cuts their heads off and puts their heads as lamps uh, lighting the, the way into the city Paul this is the man you're facing Nero he's, he, he's possibly going to martyr you he's going to cut your head off Paul you're in prison Paul says rejoice in the Lord always. And again, it's like he's going, I can't say it enough. And again, rejoice. That's grace. In that same epistle, and we said it, he said, be careful for nothing. Paul, you should be careful for everything. No, be careful for nothing. But by prayer and supplication, let your request in that same epistle, he says, you know what? I've learned to be content. Paul, you're in prison facing possible death. Paul says, I'm content. I'm content in whatever state to be. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Paul says, I've learned to be content. He learned it. It's a mystery. That word learned in that text, that word learned means mystery. The mystery of contentment. That's why John Flavel wrote that mystery of contentment. I think it was John Flavel. Mystery of contentment. I'd be wrong. It's a mystery. Paul said, I learned it. I had to learn it. We learn it. We learn contentment by being put in situations where we should be discontent. Right? And content. Grace is wonderful. 
<gasps> it's amazing. And I think when John Newton wrote that text or that, that hymn, he thought of more just saving grace. Amazing grace! How sweet the sound. Through many toils, and isn't that what he says to Olson and him? It's grace. It's grace. It's grace. And in Philippians, he also wrote, We can do all things through Christ which strengthens us. You see that in everything that happened to Paul, whether the church at Corinth, or whether the church in Galatia, churches in Galatia, of the church at Philippi, his persecutions, the slandering of these Judaizers, the attempts to pervert the gospel, Christians turning against Paul, thinking now he's his enemy. Paul never lost. Paul never lost the importance of grace in the heart of a believer. You see, that's the evidence of true safe grace. Not if we can define the doctrines of our Christian faith. Can we live it? You know that? Can we live it? Paul lived. He told Timothy, he said, Timothy, you've known my manner of conversation. The manner of my conversation. Let us not be weary in well-doing. And with that, I want to kind of close this with an introduction in the next week. Let us not be weary in well-doing. Beloved, well-doing and doing good, though it has to do with all things good and well, common sense, Scripture declares that those things well and good regarding the true believer, listen to me, are those good works which flow from a principle of grace brought in his heart. There's a lot of people who do well. Morally well in the world. They're nice people. They're wonderful people. But the doing well of which Paul speaks is the doing well which comes from a principle of grace in the heart. And that doing well is the only doing well that can glorify God. Man can't do well without grace. And people are confused about this, and I'm really looking forward to getting into this, because Paul's talking about those principles of grace that work out in our lives. This is the well-doing. Because if our well-doing doesn't first and foremost glorify God, we're not doing well. The lost world does well to play, to please and satisfy, and to receive the applause of men. The doing well he speaks here is the doing well which stems or flows from a principle of grace in the heart. That's why it cannot be destroyed. It cannot be <laughs> confined. It cannot be limited because it flows from a principle of grace. So a Christian keeps doing well. He meets opposition. Boom. He keeps doing well. He meets slander. Boom. He keeps doing well. He meets affliction. Boom. He keeps doing well. You know why? Because he has that principle of grace. And therefore, the doing of well can't be stopped or hindered by anything. We will love our enemies to the day we die. We will pray for those who persecute us. We will seek to do well to all men, regardless of how they treat us, especially to the household of faith. Why? Because we have a principle of grace that cannot die, nor be thwarted by any kind of opposition or affliction. 
That, dearly beloved, is what gives the believer such rich joy. Because then you know it's not of yourself, it's of God. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God that worketh in you. <laughs> Both the will and do good pleasure. Let me close with this. One of the greatest blessings in the Christian's life is when we come to a point to realize that all the well-being that I do is because of a principle of grace right in my heart. It's all of grace. It's something God's doing in me. And when we do well, it's never a, never a thought that this is of my doing. I'm doing this of my own. It's of my merit. It's all of grace. It's I am what I am, Paul said, by the grace of God. Therefore, Paul's exhortation and encouragement is so much better and richer and fuller when we understand that he gives it in the face of such fierce opposition and afflictions and still thrives. May the virtue and principles of grace in our heart wrought by the Holy Spirit of salvation, may they blossom and flourish in these perilous times when men are lovers of themselves. Do you know that is the first thing that leads the perilous of times? Men shall be lovers of themselves. May God help us at Reformed Baptist Church in the face of all this opposition when the world's turning against God and Christianity and Scripture. They're bringing up these woke things, these lesbians, homosexuals, LGBT, uh, critical race theory, all this stuff that's contrary to Scripture. May we contend for the faith which was once given unto the saints. Yes, contend like Paul did, but let not be contentious. Paul knew how to say, let them be accursed in chapter 1, but also knew in chapter 6 how to say, ah, strengthen your brethren. Bear one another's burdens. Divine balance. A hypocrite can't keep. Christians can. My, what a wonderful work of grace. It's a glorious thing to be a Christian. And to know and to feel the grace of God conforming you into the image of Christ in spite of yourselves. Amazing. Amazing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you now for your word. We thank you, Lord, for how it encourages us, Lord, and strengthens us and supports us in times like these where we see perilous times and men lovers and boasters of themselves. I pray, Father, Lord, you'd help us at Reformed Baptist Church in the aspects and in the area of our lives where we work and we live. I pray that, Lord, you'd help us by your grace to live out these principles to listen to what Paul says. May we, Lord God, be not weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Help us to do good unto all men, especially unto the household of faith. And may we ever and forever give God the glory for it, for we are what we are by the grace of God, and we're forever indebted to His grace. Bless now, we pray. Guide us and direct us. Bless this time of fellowship and the food. I just pray that, Lord, we'd speak uh, encouraging words to one another during this time. And may you be honored and glorified in all things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.